In 2006, a painting came on the market that was available for sale for $7 million that was purchased by an art dealer in New York City. This painting was by Max Ernst, and in English we would call it The Forest. It's a surrealist painting. Max Ernst was in the early 1920s and painted a lot of surreal paintings. Surreal paintings were the idea of taking an image from your dreams, right, the things that you dream of at night, and then you put them onto canvas so that other people can see the images from your dreams. So this is his forest as dreamed in the night. I'm not really a fan of surrealism. It's a little creepy. Toasters that look like elephants, piles of laundry that look like dancing men, it's a little creepy. Not all of us have the same estimation of what art is. I will show you another sample of art here by André Masson. Or I drew this at a board meeting. <laughs> right? Okay, this is actually called Automatic Drawing by André Masson. I think my niece sent me a picture last month that's hanging on my fridge. Looks about the same. How we value art varies depending on our preferences, but also on sort of an agreement that we as humans have given to art to say this is what we find beautiful and this is what we find attractive. One of my favorite paintings in the world is called The Disciples, and it's by Eugene Bernand, who's a French artist, and he painted this. This is the story, you could see it in their faces, Peter and John running to the tomb to see if the rumors are indeed true. Is Jesus alive? Or some of us will find Leonardo da Vinci's seminal work, The Mona Lisa, inspiring, a setting that is rarely seen in art from his period. It's a beautiful illustration. It's a wonderful job of the period art in Leonardo's time. Some of us have a little more square art taste. And we would say Mark Rothko really hit it on the head with his painting, Violet, Green, and Red. And for those of you who chose Mark Rothko's painting, you'd be pretty right. This one went in at $187 million. But when we look at art, no matter if we appreciate it or we do not, there is one thing that every single one of us could agree on. As we look at Max Ernst's painting of the forest, and we think, wow, that's amazing, or wow, that's creepy, whatever it is that we think, none of us are probably thinking, wow, that's a fake. But this turns out to indeed not be by Max Ernst. This is a forgery. It was painted by Wolfgang Beltraki. He painted over 300 canvases claiming that they belonged to the masters through the ages, sold them to galleries and dealers around the world. He was caught and imprisoned. 300 of his canvases were hung in galleries and displayed as authentic. Van Gogh, Renoir, Monet, Ernst. And the world was furious when they discovered that this was a lie. Most of the art pieces he had were lies, all of them, in fact. And we were angry. We get mad when somebody sells us a lie. We become indignant because we want the genuine article. 
Right, there's a meme that is floating around on the internet that says, I hate it when I go to the grocery store and I purchase organic broccoli, and when I get home, it's just regular donuts. <laughs> we want the real thing in all reality. We want the real thing, the real deal. And we become incensed, outraged, when things are seen as false and fake. Today, we're going to continue the journey through our Character and Characters series. It's November the 21st. We've been through over half of this series now. Have you been blessed by it? Yes, it's been a wonderful examination of people who often don't get highlighted on Sabbath morning. It's been a great examination. And today, we're continuing the story with Jonathan, one of the most genuine, authentic characters that we will find in Scripture. Most of us know about two things in regards to Jonathan. We know that he was the son of a king, and we know that a king would follow him that he was best friends with, right? Anybody know his name? Who was he best friends with? David, good. Who was his dad? Saul, good, okay. So we're going to follow through the seven appearances of Jonathan in Scripture. I invite you, if you have a Bible or a phone app that allows you to see Scripture on your phone, we'd love for you to get those out because we're going to read some highlighted verses, various verses as we journey through the times of Jonathan. We find the story of Jonathan entirely in the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 13 is where we first encounter Jonathan, and he's not a child. He hasn't just been born. This isn't a birth announcement. This is Jonathan as leader of an army. He's leading a brigade within his father's army of about a thousand troops. And if you read with me in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 3, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Right? So Jonathan is taking his group of troops and he's leading attacks against the enemies of Israel. He has plainly been a valiant soldier through the years, or he would not be in charge of the troops. And he's not just waiting for commands. Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. He's leading very courageously the troops of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 14 is where we next encounter Jonathan. This is an amazing two-man squad. Jonathan sneaks off from the army camp. He takes his armor-bearer with him, and he says, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do. Verse 6, he says, come, let's go over to the garrison of those uncircumcised, those heathens. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan says, we could take these guys. Let's go check it out. Let's see if it's going to be possible. His armor bearer thinks this is a great idea. So they come up with a signal. Well, we'll know if we're going to win if, right? In verse 8 and 9 and 10 is Jonathan explaining the system to the armor bearer. He says, we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, we'll stay in our place and not go up to them. But... If they say thus, come up to us, then we'll go up. 
for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and that will be our sign. So Jonathan and his armor bearer go and show themselves to the Philistines. The Philistines see them, and they're like, oh, come up here, it's two of you, we got you. Come on. They go, and they slaughter the entire garrison of Philistines. They win. Two men against an army. We continue following the story of Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is the first instance of Jonathan running into David. This is their first meeting. David has been talking to King Saul and is unveiling his plans, his hopes, his aspirations, and Jonathan overhears. And he hears a heart that burns for God. And in that first meeting, we have the first bromance. It's biblical. It's bromance. Jonathan, David, best friends, besties. Hashtag BFF. Right? There is something about David that Jonathan immediately grasped to. It says that his soul was knit to David's. They are best friends. And it is this friendship that alters the course of everybody's life in Israel. In chapter 19, we find Jonathan again rescuing David from Saul's wrath. Saul is angry because he's heard a song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. He's a little jealous. So he's mad at David. And David has run away, fearing that Saul will harm him. And Jonathan says, no, let me talk to my dad. He's being dad. So let me talk to him. It'll be fine. He goes out and talks to Saul in a field where David can overhear. Talks about the great things that David has done and how awesome he is and how his heart really is for good and not for ill for the whole kingdom. And Saul relents from his pursuit of David and Jonathan invites him back into the company. And then Saul tries to kill David again. It's kind of an erratic friendship. In chapter 20, while David is still hiding, fearing that Saul will kill him, Jonathan makes up a, a story that David has gone to Bethlehem to offer sacrifices with his family. And he tells the king, he says, you know, if the king gets mad, then I'll know that he's out to kill you. But if he doesn't, he says, oh, you should have told me then I'll know that he's not really mad and you can come home. And I'll send out a little guy running as I shoot arrows. As I shoot the arrows, I'll, I'll be yelling at him, go further if it means you have to run away, or whoa, you just passed them if you can stay. They work out a code, and in the end, Jonathan realizes his dad is out to kill David, and he warns him and asks him to flee. He also asks that no matter what happens, will you take care of my family? Will you watch out for those who come behind? For my children. Will you do that, David? And David agrees. They make a pact. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, Jonathan does an amazing thing. This is the last time these best friends see each other. The last time they're in each other's company. David is hiding in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. 
And in verse 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 23, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. He encouraged his faith. He told him to hold on, to keep keeping on, to chase what God had promised. The last time that we see Jonathan in Scripture is in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell, dying, on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. Jonathan died, but oh, Jonathan lived. Jonathan had an amazing singular focus in his life in all of these instances that we see him in. He had an amazing ability to be pursuing one kingdom constantly. It was not the kingdom of his father. It was not Jonathan trying to establish his father's power, his father's authority, his father's strength and might. It wasn't Jonathan trying to establish his own kingdom, though he had the right by blood to be the next king. He wasn't fighting David. He wasn't fighting the armies. He wasn't trying to convince people to turn on Saul. He wasn't fighting for David's kingdom either. He wasn't arguing that God had removed his hand from Saul, though he had, and had placed it on David. You see, Jonathan was fighting for one kingdom, and that was the kingdom of God. Always only one kingdom. How did he stay consistent with a despotic father and a neurotic best friend? How did he see the end? How did he stay on target? How did he do that? In his book, Seven ha Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey says this, begin with the end in mind. Have a goal, pick it out. Find out where you want to end up and start there. Stephen explains what he means by saying begin with the end in mind. It says to begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. Jonathan knew that he wanted to wind up with God in the end. He knew that he wanted his family to be with God. He knew that he wanted his friends to be with God. He wanted God's kingdom to rule and to reign. That was his destination. Reunited with God as humanity was originally designed. That was his hope, that was his goal. The end that Jonathan wanted was God. The kingdom of God. So he was willing to pursue anything to make that happen. 
So how did he do it? Because I make a lot of goals for myself, and sometimes I make them happen. So how is it that we can always only seek one kingdom? How is it that we can always and only pursue one God? How is it that we do that? I have a confession. I have what my mother likes to call creative hearing, right? phrase was coined when I was a child, and I would hear what I wanted to hear. Like, yes, you can stay up for two more hours reading after lights out, right? Those sorts of things. This problem extends into music. Hmm. Maybe some of you also have this problem. Anybody hear songs and you you think, this is exactly what that song says, and it turns out it's not at all what that song says? Mm -hmm. Well, with Christmas coming, I'll share with you one of my favorites. You guys know about a little reindeer, red nose, right? He has a lot of friends, Donner and Blitzen. Okay, we all know the song. So this is the lyrics as they are supposed to be. All of the other reindeer. I was convinced that this song was wrong because it left out one of Rudolph's friends in the beginning. Olive, the other reindeer. In fact, she's not there. No. Right? So when we hear lyrics and we hear them incorrectly, our brain actually makes up stories to help fill in. Well, of course he would have a friend named Olive, and of course it would be a woman, because there doesn't seem to be a lot of other women on the team, and you'd need one to help with directions. Right? So you fill in... (laughs) You fill in all of the gaps. It's called top down processing, that what I expect to happen is going to happen. So these misheard lyrics, there's actually a phrase for this. It's called a mondegreen. So when you hear a lyric and you hear it incorrectly, but you created this whole reason why the way you hear it is correct, it's a mondegreen. All right? Sylvia Wright coined the term in 1954 when she misheard a Scottish ballad that said they buried him on the green, and she thought it was talking about a lady mondegreen. So one more of my favorite misheard lyrics. Some of you like 1950s music. This one is a classic from that time and period, right? There is a bad moon on the rise. This is a proper lyric. But as it was about spies and all, I thought this was a very handy thing that they told them where to go if they had to go to the bathroom. There's a bathroom on the right. Right? We can hear things and we can hear them incorrectly. And sometimes we convince ourselves that the incorrect way we heard it is the correct thing. That our own perception becomes reality. See, Jonathan's perception was firmly established in the kingdom of God so that his reality and his perception matched, so that what he chose to go out for, what he chose to fight for, what he chose to defend was always only the kingdom of God. It did not change for him. He was always only pursuing one kingdom because his reality matched his expectation. He was able to discern between where God was working and where God was not working. 
If we want to be authentically, intentionally pursuing the kingdom of God, we must be able to discern where God is at work. Discernment is defined as the ability to see and understand people, things, and situations clearly and intelligently. Throughout the glimpses we have of Jonathan, again and again, he figured the right way to go, the right direction to head. Why? Because he began with the end in mind. He knew the goal that he wanted to see. So he pursued that. He was very clear about searching for the real so that he could achieve what he wanted. He could see the kingdom of God grow. I used to work in marketing and public relations for a medical firm, and I had people who would come into the office to visit me, and there was one little guy named Tammy. Tammy was about three, and he would come in, and we would talk about various things, and one day he asked what we did, and we talked about how our bodies heal, and we get better, and bruises go away, and our bones can grow back together, and all of those sorts of things. And he, he repeated to me in his, his verbiage what we had just talked about. And I turned to him and I said, Timmy, that's right, you are a smart cookie. And immediately a little scowl came across his face and his little arms tucked around his waist. And he stood like this. And I was like, well, what's the matter, Timmy? And he looked me in the eye and he said, Jen, I am not a cookie. When we know what is real, we can declare it. If we don't know what the kingdom of God is to be like, we need to learn. I recommend that you do a search. Look for any time you see kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven show up in scripture. Make a list, write it down. Look for the verses, because if the kingdom of God is something other than what your life looks like, you have some rearranging of priorities to do. We have some rearranging of priorities to do. While I believe, as Ellen White says, the kingdom of God starts now, as soon as Jesus enters my heart, the kingdom of God is not complete until we are standing with Jesus. And I want desperately to see that happen and I know you do too. And that means I'm looking for the reality of God's kingdom so I can fight for it in my life, day in and day out. Knowing reality and living it are not always the same thing. When Jonathan made a mistake, when he told David, no, 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 my dad does not really want to kill you, he's just temporarily insane, give me a minute, I'll talk to him and figure it all out. You'll come home soon. When he was wrong, he went and told David, no, dad's going to kill you. You should run. It's time to go. I'm sorry, but go. He was willing to acknowledge when he was wrong. And that's a really important characteristic to fight for the kingdom of God. We must have discernment, but we must also have humility. Humility is defined as a low, 
or modest view of one's own importance. Jonathan definitely had that. He knew the difference between honoring people and respecting people. He respected David. He knew that David's pursuit of eliminating God's enemies was a God-given pursuit. He heard the stories. He appreciated the energy, the passion that David had. Respect is earned. But Jonathan honored his father. He never abandoned his father through the ups and the downs, through the wild temper tantrums, through the attempts on his own life by his father. He never abandoned him. He chose to honor him because honor is a choice. Honor is something I give to someone else. They cannot earn it. The Bible tells us many things that we can honor. First and foremost, honor God. Honor our parents. Honor those who preach the word. Honor gracious women. Honor ones who have lives of honor. Give them honor. Respect can be earned, but honor is always given. I treat you with respect because I choose to honor you. Why do I honor things? It's not because God says so, although that's a really good reason. It's because God has given intrinsic value to relationships and to people, to his creation, and I honor that value. Jonathan died because he refused to dishonor his father. He chose to pursue the kingdom of God recklessly because he knew that God could still use anyone, that there was still hope that Saul would change, that he would come back to understanding the father again. He chose to honor his father to the very end because it meant pursuing the kingdom in his own life. Honor is sacrificial. I may have to give up everything to honor what God has asked me to honor, and I respect that. So what do I need to do so that I can be a genuine, authentic Christian so that when people meet me, they know that the first thing, the only thing, the always only thing my heart beats for is the kingdom of God. I have to know my own expectation from the reality of God. I need to be informed, first and foremost, from the word. Also, I need to be willing to fess up when I make a mistake. I need to be willing to make it right. I need to be willing to step out and say, I was wrong, here's a better way. And if I cannot do that, can I claim that I am pursuing the kingdom of God? May we today, recklessly, hopefully, always only pursue the kingdom 
of God.